Welcome back to Not Another Science Podcast. I'm Tom. And I'm Helena. This week, we have a bit of a meta one for you. In collaboration with InterSci, an Edinburgh University society dedicated to encouraging conversations about science and technology, we bring you an episode all about the art of science communication with guests Dr. Sarah Jane Judge and Dr. Fari Inzveri. Sarah Jane is an accomplished science communicator and the public engagement manager for the Wellcome Centre for Cell Biology in Edinburgh. And Fari is a clinical research physician in Zimbabwe doing an online master's in public health at Edinburgh University. He also runs intersized chat side events where scientists get to talk about their work to a public audience. Helena and I both learned so much from this conversation and we were really inspired by Sarah Jane's and Fari's efforts to promote accessibility and engagement with science. So let's just jump into it. Before we start, this podcast is sponsored by Griner Bio One, supplying laboratory, diagnostic and medical products to research institutions, higher education, the NHS and others across the UK. For details of the full product range, visit www.gbo.com. So I'm Dr. Sarah Jane Judge, and I'm the Public Engagement Manager for the Wellcome Centre for Cell Biology, based at the University of Edinburgh. All right, and I'm Dr. Farin Zvere. I'm a Master of Public Health student at the University of Edinburgh, but uh, in my non-online persona, uh, I'm a clinical study research physician here at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine Centre in Zimbabwe. And I also dabble in a bit of non-profit. I have a non-profit organization that is working to reduce inequalities in the diabetes space, not just within the, the patients, but uh, healthcare providers as well. Cool. Awesome. Uh, so Sarah Jane, I guess if we could start uh, with, yeah, just a brief overview of the Welcome Institute for Cell Biology and a little bit about what you guys do. So the Wellcome Centre is one of 15 funded discovery research centres that Wellcome runs, all doing something linked to health research. The Centre for Cell Biology, the name obviously is there. We are specifically looking at researching cells, DNA function, so real like discovery research at a cellular level. My job as the public engagement manager is basically to make that work accessible, engaging to the public, and also where at all possible to have the public become involved in the research that's going on. That's trickier for our centre than some of the others because our centre is working at this cellular level. So you can imagine very easily the tropical medicine welcome centre, they can actually get real patients in to be part of trials, etc. With us, you know, most of our work is in cells, a lot of it is plant animal cells even. Um, so we certainly don't have a great deal of patient engagement. So it's my job to kind of bridge that to get real people interested in what's happening and to let the public feel that they have like an input into the kind of research that's going on at the centre. We've got various ways that we do that, but I guess traditionally our centre has really gone down the arts meets science path. Um, so we've done a lot of arts projects and we work with artistic community groups. And, and people are really surprised to hear is that we have a lab, a glass lab, that is literally a glass kiln. So we have been making glass artwork pieces at the centre. So we brought in an artist in residence, a glass making artist in residence, um, and they trained our researchers to make glassware that represented, you know, chromosomes, that represented DNA, microscopic outputs. Um, so just a way of them being able to express what they made. Now, what's lovely about that is we had an exhibition and that was on for a summer in the Botanic Gardens, which, you know, massive footfall, 20,000 people over the summer. 
became engaged and our researchers went along and explained their pieces. But that works at that level, but it also works just, you know, that the when the researchers meet someone, whether that's at a festival or in their own home, they've got this piece that helps them to like really break down that barrier as a talking point about what they do. So yeah, I guess the other part of my job is to to help these researchers become more comfortable talking about their work to the lay public. So obviously we do things in schools, we do things with families, but I guess our main aim is uh, really just to to get the public and our local community in Edinburgh particularly involved in what's going on in the centre. So we, we really do a whole myriad of things. I love that idea because I think one of the problems with science when you explain it to people is that it's, it's not tactile. It's all teeny things and teeny objects and it's very hard to show and obviously you can't get the public into a, a science lab to show them things down the microscope so having something that they can touch and feel and talk about and point to that that's a very cool idea with the tactile element something cool really cool we did with the glass was that we made um, some chromosome so like meiosis and mitosis really tactile versions um, for the blind school in edinburgh it's amazing how much more accessible you can make it when you put it into like a physical medium like that. We So Tom and I were amazed by your LinkedIn, Sarah Jane. I was just gushing over how amazing your science communication CV is. <laughs> and we were curious to know whether was science communication something you always wanted to do or was there like a particular moment that sparked this passion for you? I started off, um, I'm a real lover of biology, like I love to understand how anything works, but particularly how living things work. And I am also big passionate about the sea, like I was brought up like, you know, being beside the coast. So marine biology was my key area of interest. And I studied aquatic bioscience at the University of Glasgow. While I was there, there was a choice of modules and there was one I picked that just sounded interesting called Science, Communication and Commerce. And as part of that module, we had to go to the Science Centre in Glasgow and review one of their science exhibits as like uh, as an assessment. And I just fell in love with the place. I was like, this is so cool. I absolutely love this um, environment. And they happened to mention that they needed like people to work there. Um, they were taking on like recruits. So I, you know, put in my CV and I did my little demo on the day about recycling from memory and I got a job there and I just realized that that was my calling. Like I was far more like skilled in talking to people about science than I was being, you know, my lab work. Like I, you know, it was probably adequate, but I realized I was better at that side of things. And it made sense because I was like a theater person as well, like amateur dramatics. I did like all the, you know, local pantomimes and things. So it was marrying those two things together, my science and my performance. That's really interesting because me and Helena, we're both kind of talking about how neither of us really <laughs> wanted to be scientists either. Like the, I feel with science communication, it's kind of, you're like creating something and you're doing it and it's, it feels a bit more, I guess, immediate than like research, which can take a really long time. I think you have to have a lot of patience and like passion for what you do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so having done a PhD now and having gone back to doing a PhD much, you know, later on, I definitely now appreciate like how long like that process takes. Now, actually, my PhD ended up being in social sciences because I looked at science communication from a sociological perspective. And that was based on the fact that I loved what I was doing so much. And I could see that it was making a difference to people from, you know, non-traditional like science and, and university backgrounds so much. I wanted to learn more about that. 
Um, but yeah, it was a surprise because yeah, my science communicate, I can turn around like a science communication or public engagement program. And you know, a couple of days, like we'll get a call from a community group and they'll be like, is there anything we could do this weekend, even though it's in a pandemic and it's got to be outdoors. And I'll be like, um let's do a cellular scavenger hunt you know and then I go out and I buy all the stuff and I write a risk assessment and I make the stuff and it can happen in two days and yeah my PhD ended up from start to finish being about six years like in total um (laughs) because I was working alongside it and you know it changes as you go typical PhD story so we also noticed that you did a lot of work abroad particularly in Australia did you notice differences in science communication in different places I was recruited internationally to go out and run outreach for the University of Newcastle in New South Wales in Australia. And specifically, the reason was that they felt that science communication was this, like, at this point, you know, it was, it was definitely getting more established, it was growing, but it was very compartmentalized within countries. So like, there was lots of demos and ideas that were in Australia, and then there'd be ones that were in the UK and the ones in Europe. So they wanted specifically to bring somebody from overseas to bring fresh perspective in. I think the real difference for me was when I got the amazing experience to be able to go out back in Australia. So we partnered with an organization called Outback Stores, who provides the community stores within indigenous communities. So very, very remote locations in Australia, you know, like literally some of the most remote parts of the world. And I was very lucky I would have like a plane and a pilot for a week at a time who would fly me out to these different very remote communities. I had to think about what I could do differently because I couldn't rely on Van de Graaffs and, you know, crazy chemicals and explosions and big, big demos to catch people's interest because I couldn't take those things on light aircraft. Like, you know, you know, try talking a pilot into letting you have a bottle of bleach, let alone, you know, be taking (laughs) potassium chlorate and things on his small plane. Like, you know, it was really hard work. So I had to go back to basics and be like, actually, what can I get? Because the other part of this is, I wanted to be able to do things when I went out to this community that that teacher would then be able to replicate in the future. Because ultimately, I can visit once. You're the only person who comes who's just here for their for the kids, for the entertainment, for the schools, for the education. So you know, you feel that's a real responsibility to make sure what you're doing can have a more lasting impact. It was really interesting to see there how they've still associated the things I was doing with as magic. And having to really explain to them, like, yeah, this does seem like magic because it's so amazing. But actually, you know, it's science. And now we can learn about how it actually how it actually works. The demos really did have to be tailored to the audience. I did a thing where, you know, I got glow in the dark stars and we did like a demo showing them different star signs. And I had little vests that the children would come out and put on and they would be the different star signs. When I would ask the students there, like, oh, this is what we would call Orion, what would you call this? And they just wouldn't answer. They'd go completely silent. And it was only when an Aboriginal student I had taken from the University of Newcastle out with me um, to help with the show, she said, she whispered to me, you know, afterwards, she's like, they don't know if they're allowed to tell you that because that's Aboriginal knowledge. And it clicked. And I was like, I really need to think about how I am delivering these shows and how I tailor them to the audiences to make sure that I am not asking them to do and say things that maybe they're not sure that they were allowed to tell the white person who's just arrived in their community. And I thought, right, well, this isn't my place to write these. So I need to get local knowledge. I need to get like um, relevant knowledge in. 
Yeah, I love that because that, that's something you can bring anywhere, really. Like, I think it's so important to foster an awareness of the diversity of audiences that you're going to have. Yeah, and COVID also is changing that a lot as well. So we've had to really think about, well, how can we still make this super accessible and engaging and hands-on? I'm a science presenter for the Royal Institution, so I'm very lucky I get to deliver like the Christmas lectures, but essentially in schools, which is just an amazing experience. But, you know, we're really having to go back to basics because the big thing about what we do when we design our experiments is, like, say, thinking about, you know, getting everybody as involved as possible. Um, and we've always had to take into account, like, things like, as you say, neurodiversity, you know, how many extra ear defenders should we have so that, like, if there is people whose noises will particularly affect them, we can make sure that the teachers have those ready. How do we do that now that we don't, we're not allowed to give things out? You know, it's, it, it really has changed how we're approaching things. But I think, again, it will be for the better ultimately because it's helping us to really think outside the box again. And I think maybe we have got a bit too comfortable with delivering the same old demos in the same old way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that actually makes quite a good transition to Intersight and their various activities helping scientists go back to the basics in terms of explaining their science. Ferry, could you please give us a quick introduction to Intersight and the kind of things that you guys do? Intersai is the University of Edinburgh's student society, which was formed by a group of passionate postgrad students who wanted to make the science accessible to everyone. So I guess if you, you can tell from the name Intersai, it's uh, short for interdisciplinary science. So the, the aim is to have a group of scientists from different fields discussing about science in uh, jargon-free, easy-to-understand language that is easily accessible to the members of the public as well. One of our main events at Intersight is um, an event called ChatSight, where we have postgraduate students who come on and discuss their research. And, you know, it sounds very simple, but I'm sure all of us here can understand how it is when you get a scientist to speak about their science. It's easy to go on and on and on and on and everyone else to say, sorry, I have no idea what you're talking about. I mean, it happens with me as well when I'm speaking to my parents about some medical stuff. They're like, sorry, I've got no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Another event that we have is uh, Ignoble Chat Site. So I'm not so sure if you're uh, familiar with the Ignoble Science Prizes. Basically, it's science or research that at first makes you laugh when you read it, the title, and you're like, this sounds ridiculous. But then later on, you actually start thinking and you're like, ah, okay, I understand that. For example, there was one that was done, um, an experiment, the effects of cotton, polyester, and wool trousers on the sexual activity of rats. So the scientist <laughs> actually made these little uh, pants for all these rats <laughs> and he put them on and measured their their sexual activity you know <laughs> when you listen to it you're like what this is ridiculous but the great thing about it is the whole point was actually to measure to try to measure the effect of different uh, textures on infertility in human beings that's where the research is uh, leads on to but at first you listen to it and you just laugh you know and I guess that's also a way of engaging people in the science as well. So we have that where we have an undergrad student who picks one uh, ignoble science prize winning uh, research study and they come and they speak about it. I guess that that covers uh, what we do at Intersight in a nutshell. 
a very long nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, uh, we, we were speaking about how we like science communication because it's very immediate. But you're, you know, you're a researcher as well as a science communicator. So how do you find kind of balancing those two different things? So, you know, as um, I actually just noticed now that I have a bit of a similar background with uh, Dr. Sarah Jane, because I also used to dabble in a lot of theater as before I went to med school. And I think maybe that has actually uh, helped me now in the roles that I have, because it's really helped me with articulating myself. And um, I guess it's uh, it's helped me build a character, a bit of a persona, so I can easily just adjust to situations and try to bring across the message. But as a physician, you know, every single day you are faced with a situation where you have to explain some difficult concepts to someone who might not be in the state of mind to really process everything that you're saying. So, you know, it's a very big challenge. And sometimes you find physicians, uh, I guess we might touch on this later on, but physicians might say, okay, this person might not really understand what I'm going to say. So I'll just uh, say, take these uh, pills or have the scan and you'll be all right, you know. And I think it's, it's really important for us as physicians and as researchers to be able to communicate what it is we're talking about in that simple, easy to understand language. I like to call it the art of science communication because it's not really, it's not something that you're just born with. I think it's something that you have to learn and hone and develop with time goes. And I think by introducing students to this at an early stage, it will help whether you stay in the science field or not, or you go into medicine, you go into other forms of research. I guess InterSci is just helping you build that platform. And for me personally, I think it's worked wonders already in the short time that I've been part of InterSci. Yeah, I definitely agree that science communication is something that we're only starting to talk about recently. And it definitely is something that should be introduced really early on in any science degree. I think we don't encourage scientists enough to talk, to talk about their research and it's not something that they feel comfortable doing. I think a lot of the time, I've, I mean, I've had some science communication events where you kind of feel like the researcher has just adapted their normal talk and just, like you said, like glossed over some things or, you know, just simplified it as best they can, but it doesn't, it's not made for the audience that they're, that they're talking to. It is something really that like, um, as I say, is a big part of my job is trying to get the researchers to really think about differently about how they can communicate with a, a you know a range of different audiences and art is obviously you know a great way of doing that um, and that is why we do have these different artists and residences as I mentioned we had a glass artist for quite some time we currently have a comic book artist in residence who's making a comic so every one of our labs is working with our comic book artist in residence Neil Bratch piece and um, you know I think it's just really useful them getting to chat with Neil generally to come up with what the strip for their individual labs is going to be but I can see a shift in it's actually getting them to talk to somebody who's absolutely from not a science background they have to rethink about oh actually how does this not just to like how good this work in a comic book that will aimed at all ages, like a family comic book, but also just how they explain their work to to Neil. And they're like, oh, hold on. Yeah, no, you're not from a background. So I've got to rethink about, you know, how can I describe the process of meiosis to somebody who really has not done, you know, biology before? Neil is, a, is also um, better known as the wee man. So he is a, 
a comedian and uh, that's how I know him because I, I do stand up comedy and had met him through the circuit. And so, yeah, they're just really enjoying like seeing his ideas and the kind of comical perspective. And it, I, I can definitely see the worth like it's I could always see the worth, obviously, in like the glass artists and things. But I can definitely see like a, a real shift in how they're thinking about their work and their approach in your work and like you say things like the bringing comedy into to science like um like Farry has, has said is, is so clever such a clever way of getting people to to engage with a topic so i guess our next question is how can you take these techniques and ensure that we include kind of the widest variety of people that we can part of the work that we do with our diabetes nonprofit organization is actually providing consultancy to uh, different organizations on inclusion of uh, people of color in diabetes research, in diabetes uh, treatment plans, in self-management education programs, and also just the healthcare providers themselves. Because you find that it's easier for someone to connect with a healthcare provider that looks like them or that has a story or background that is kind of similar to theirs because they feel like this person understands what I'm going through. So, you know, part of the work we do is trying to increase the number of people of color who are working as healthcare providers in the diabetes scene. We just recently got a grant which we're going to use to launch a virtual diabetes self-management education program aimed at uh, people of color who are over the age of 65 because that is one population that is easily, uh, people just gloss over it. They're like, ah, people over 65, like they're, they're a bit old. They don't know technology. Well, how are you going to have a virtual diabetes self-management education program with people over 65? And I really think by engaging uh, this population, we can really do a lot more work in that field of uh, diabetes self-management. I think ultimately, regardless of the, the the group you want to work with, whatever group it is that's, you know, you're trying to widen your audience and you're trying to make sure that you're engaging with those people who are not traditionally engaged with science and research, it's ultimately about not telling them what you have. It's about asking them what they need or what they would like and what would be useful to them and interesting to them. So don't get me wrong, you need to approach a lot of the time. Like You can't expect that a, a certain demographic is going to come to you, particularly where they don't feel connected to science and research, cell biology, they don't feel connected to Edinburgh University. So you do have to make that connect. But it's not, to me, about going to them and saying, here's a range of projects, which one do you want to do to tick our box to say that we've worked with you know this, this particular group or we've widened our audience. It's about going to them and saying, right, we have some cool stuff. Here's examples of things we've done. But what we're really interested in is what are you most interested in? It's also about building relationships. These communities um, are are traditionally, you know, bad, have been badly treated by these drop-in. We want to tick our box and say that we've worked with you. So we come in once and then we disappear and you never see us again. It is about relationship building. It's about giving them Maybe, yes, going in and delivering a particular activity, but then building the relationship enough that they have trust in you to tell you what they need. Something I'm kind of concentrating a bit on now as well is looking at 
pathways into science. So I'm really trying to highlight our researchers and our staff who haven't come in through that linear pathway of like, you know, I did really well in my exams at school, then I did went straight to university, then I did a master's, then I did a PhD, and now I'm a researcher. Like I've been looking for these unusual pathways. The people who came in as a technician just loved what they were doing, learned the science whilst working in the uni as a technician, and then have ended up being a PhD and a, and a, and a PI now. And again, that's something I really, really want to focus on over the next year is identifying these individuals who are not always the best because the 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 you know they haven't all. It's not always been something to be proud of coming through science in that non traditional way. And I really want to highlight these faces and make sure that people can see that maybe you know you don't have to just be the best at maths and science at school. Like there could still be ways and opportunities for you to get into being a researcher. And I think that ties in quite well to what you were saying about how you know, bringing in different perspectives. So having someone who hasn't gone the traditional way, that person will often have a different perspective to someone who has done the traditional, you know, undergrad, master's, PhD, you might have a different set of skills or a different set of knowledge, which is which is really important and really important to bring in. So I, I absolutely agree that that kind of thing is important to highlight. It touches on a topic that we talked about here, which is how important it is to teach science communication early and to have people be aware of that early in both of your experiences have you found that more people are interested in this is this something that people are talking about more and do people do researchers see the value of this more now do you think i think with everything that's happened in the world in 2020/2021 and hopefully not beyond 2021 people have i think slowly scientists have realized that okay it's important for us to actually learn how to communicate what we are doing, what we find, and what we think to people, because it's very easy for people to misunderstand what you're saying uh, because they don't really have a clear understanding of what you're saying. And they will just say, okay, I think he said that if I get the shot, I'm going to get the vaccine jab, I'm going to be uh, very, very ill. And it's like, no, not everyone's going to be very ill. Some people are going to be very ill. But bringing that message out to people can be a bit. Uh, complicated. And I think, like you said, Helena, that I think every single scientist, whether you're going to continue in science or not, has to have a science communication course of some sort during their education. I think it's important that we bring this in at an early stage. And I, I feel that it will allow people to, to hone this art, hone the skills as they grow. And I think um, the more the more we put out that message, the more likely it is that younger people will come out and start seeking it. Because as Sarah Jane said, when she was in uni, it wasn't really a thing. Like, what was science communication? Who knows what that is? It's just, who knows what it is, right? And I think it's really important that once we get the message out there, then people will start actively seeking it at a much younger age. And who knows, maybe in 10, 15 years' time, uh, being a science communicator of some sort will be the hardest job of the uh, of our times right <laughs> yeah I think it is really it is changing but it's happening slower than I think we would hope um what is very encouraging is how much science communication and, and particularly public engagement of research has become is getting instructed from like a top-down basis so organizations like Welcome and these big funders are now really pushing for public engagement to be considered 
even at the funding application stage. I, again, part of my job as the P manager at Wellcome Centre is to help the researchers, the, the, the principal investigators for each lab to put in, and it's only 250 words, but you know, you've got to start somewhere where they'll talk actually in their funding applications about as part of this grant, if we get this, this is how we're going to engage the public. This is how we are going to involve the public. And this is how we're going to make sure that this pro- this research is, is influenced and shaped where possible by, by the general public. Is that always happening? in my center even as no it's not like there's a lot of researchers who see that as being my job they see that as why you have public engagement managers and and officers and and this is or you know or there's a couple of people in my lab like to talk to kids so we'll send them into schools and that will tick that box that will scratch that that itch and so yeah there is a cultural change that is required and yeah, like I think that our centre is doing well, we're being recognised for this cultural shift, but it needs to happen on a much wider basis across research. So there is definitely still a lot of cultural work to do. And I think it will happen. And like Farry says, it's a lot about starting them early um, and building it into science lessons more generally that like, you know, what you science is super important and discovery research is, you know, particularly important, but it's really important that we are able to get the public support in this like it can't go on in a vacuum it has to it can't be ivory towers and people preaching down people need to support it and if anything obviously this pandemic and the last year has shown us that yeah totally i agree with you on that point because i actually for at the beginning of the pandemic i actually thought maybe we're regressing and we're going backwards in terms of people's understanding and trust in science and then i realized that Maybe actually we're not regressing, but then this is the level that we've been at. But like you said, people got comfortable and said, yeah, I know everyone understands. Everyone's got access to the Internet. Everyone can Google it or whatever. But And then now we've just realized like, oh, actually, we have a lot of work still to be done. And I think um, I always like to look at the positives in every situation. And I think that is one of the positives in from this COVID pandemic is that we've realized the level that we are in terms of science communication and the role that science communication still needs to play in society. And uh, hopefully when the next big event, fingers crossed, touch wood, all the wood, everywhere, that uh, we don't have a similar situation. But <laughs> if we ever have something similar, hopefully by then we will have built up a strong enough foundation that uh, we can easily uh, combat all the stories that come up about uh, what happens to you if you get the COVID, vac- COVID vaccine, for example. Well, I mean, I've been just really inspired by the work that both of you guys are doing. And it's, you know, here I am hosting a podcast. I'm like, yeah, how do science communication? But I've learned <laughs> kind of a lot. <laughs> so clearly science communication, this space is going to be huge going forwards. Do you guys have any advice for like people who are wanting to go into this area? What should they think about when they're working on projects and working with communities and stuff like that? You know what? At the end of the day, anything that you want to do, you just need to take the first step and start doing it. So you're a University of Edinburgh student, look look for a society that does science communication. Could be InterSight, could be UCI, could be anything. Start with that, join that, see how it goes and um, start reaching out to no, uh, Dr. Sarah Jane Judge is very welcome. You drop an email and you say, I, I want to work on this project. Can you help me? She'll definitely help you. I know 
with Maria as well, who works uh, with Sarah Jane. She is very open and ready to help with anything. You know, so I think that is the first step. Just join something, a, a society or a program, or even attend an event because through networking, you can find other opportunities. Scientists don't live in a vacuum. They're not just scientists. You have other things in your life, whether you're an undergraduate, postgraduate, whatever level you're at, you have other things, you have other interests. And find those audiences and try and make that link, that connection. So if you are somebody who loves sport, you know, there's loads of ways you can bring science into sport. There's like, you know, there's a science cycling group and they cycle and then they stop and they have lunch and they talk about a science issue. Like, so look at ways of bringing it into your everyday life, because ultimately, if it's something that you're really engaged in and you're really good at and you really enjoy and is part of your life anyway, it's not a chore then. It's like something that you are like doing for the love of it. And if you can find ways to make it enjoyable and for the other people in those groups as well, then that's going to be really positive. And then also practice communicating to different types of audiences. Don't live in a vacuum of just associating with other science students. Meet students from other societies, other backgrounds, and talk to them about your work because you're practicing talking to people with different knowledge bases. And like we've discussed already in this, that will ultimately only do good for your your communication skills you're also teaching them something new but it potentially will be bringing in other ways of thinking about and how you approach your your science and that can involve like tell kids about what you do what your what kind of science you like and you're interested in practice speaking to kids practice speaking to people from different backgrounds people you know meet lots of people talk um to lots of different people about your work um because that is is a real skill being able to really tailor your your content to different people's interests and knowledge levels but yeah just that just enjoy it like I don't think I would have come anywhere near as far with this if I hadn't matched it up with my theater and my comedy background because I think that I don't see it as a job I see it as something I really love doing Huge thanks to both Sarah Jane and Farry for coming on the show. We learned so much and had an absolute blast. You can check out Sarah Jane's extensive CV on LinkedIn or head to the Welcome Centre for Cell Biology website for details of research and upcoming events. The address is wcb.ed.ac.uk. You can find out more about Intersight and their upcoming events on their website, intersight.org, and we'll put all their socials in the show notes. You can find them on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or drop them an email at intersci.edinburgh at gmail.com. This podcast is brought to you by the Edinburgh University Science Magazine. In each episode, we explore fascinating themes and ideas, talk to awesome researchers about their work, and find out more about the science being done by our very own staff and students here at the university. If you have any feedback for us, or if you'd like to get in touch with a question or suggestion, you can reach us on our Facebook page, Edinburgh University Science Media, or at our Twitter, at USCI. That's at E-U-S-C-I. You can also drop us an email at usci.podcast.gmail.com, and you can find the show notes and the latest issue of the magazine at usci.org.uk. This episode was hosted by me, Helena Konu, and my partner in crime, Tom Edwick. The podcast logo was designed by USI Chief Editor Apple Chu, and the awesome podcast episode art was designed by Heather Jones, our social media and marketing genius. 
The intro music is an edited version of Funkarama, and the outro music is an edited version of Funk Game Loop, both by Kevin McLeod. Thank you for listening, and until next time, keep it science.